Walking away from Arcadia. I'm Victor, and I'm here again with my co-host, Simon Eichhornchen, and we are going to be discussing War in Concordia, The Shattered Dream. This is, as far as I'm aware, the last book in the original Changeling line before the long interregnum preceding C20. It's a little bit different from anything else that was ever published, Simon and I have been diving into books as part of our Metaplot episodes, our research, and this book is basically just solid Metaplot. Uh, it's the only book quite like it that I've ever read. The only other text I can think of that compares in terms of just being about plot is maybe Beckett's Jihad Diary. Simon, can you think of any other books that are this just directly about story? No, there are other Changeling books that have huge narrative components, but they're mostly built around something else. Fool's Luck has a pretty big narrative component. Kingdom of Willows has a pretty big narrative component, but they're both really about something else. I would most closely compare this book to Ends of Empire. It's very clear that there was the choice to move Changeling in the direction of having a metaplot story they were going to tell. And that's the story of the disappearance of David. Kingdom of Willows introduces that story. But Kingdom of Willows, despite being very narratively heavy, is an adventure supplement, and it is a kingdom book. It's about a location. There's a lot of stuff in that book that isn't just telling that story, even though I'd say probably about a third of that book is devoted to the story. Fool's Luck is a book about commoners. Probably about half of that book is about this story. And then War in Concordia is just the rest of the story. Similarly, in Wraith, they had been telling a solid story since second edition started. They introduced the story even maybe a little before second edition dropped in the guild books, the intro fiction for each guild book, The Road of Steel and Souls, were the installments about what was going on with the Death Lords and what had happened with Karin and that whole mystery. And then at the end of the line, they just went, well, you're getting canceled, but we know you have this story. Take a book and finish it. But even Ends of Empire had all of that wrapped up in an adventure. There was a very like structured adventure supplement. And then there was a chapter that was all about the ferryman, the ferryman book they never got to release. And then a chapter that was the Nimoy guild book. And so they used those pre-existing structures and they used a lot of the artifacts and the things you'd expect to find in those books. So it wasn't even then 100% just metaplot. This book is similar. It's clear, okay, well, you're getting canceled. You're halfway through the story. Here, have a book. You can finish it. Except they didn't wrap it up in anything like have a final kingdom book or anything like that it's just bam plot from start to finish so it reads a little differently simon what were your overall thoughts of this text 
Hmm. We were talking before we started recording about whether White Wolf is bad at organization or if Changeling is just particularly bad at organization. And this book, although it is much better than a lot of the other Dreaming books at having things organized in a way that's semi-logical, and you could like look at chapter heads and be like, oh, I kind of get what this is about and what I'll expect to find there, it still has issues like everything else in Dreaming. There are two chapters about places and people right next to each other. I don't know why these are two different chapters. <laughs> that said, this is one of the books that I really liked a long time ago when I was first getting into Dreaming, and I was a little bit leery about reading it again for this because I was like, okay, I've kind of hated big chunks of everything we've read so far. I wonder what's going to happen here. <laughs> this book almost stands up. It's kind of where the plot should begin in the core book, because by the end of the narrative section of this book, you're in a place where everything is pretty interesting, and there are lots of different directions to go, unlike the core books where, I don't know, stuff happened, I guess, but that was like 50 years ago, right? I read this book and I felt the same way about the relationship to the core book. I got through even just the first major chapter and I couldn't help but think, oh, wow, I could actually picture playing in this setting. My experience with Changeling as a storyteller and also as someone just watching other people talk about their plots is that... Everyone creates their own little world for Changeling. And people are always going to create their own little world for role-playing games. I mean, that's why World of Darkness has the golden rule. But with all the other games, I would say it's kind of a coin toss as to whether or not a storyteller is going to pull a bunch of stuff from the main plot and use it to construct their particular chronicle and tweak a few things, or if they're just going to use the concepts and start from scratch. Whereas with Changeling, pretty much everyone I know kind of starts from scratch, because there's nothing in the core books that's that interesting in terms of setting. I mean, you get these one-two paragraph write-ups on each kingdom. Meh, there's not really enough meat there to do anything with, so everything ends up in Kingdom of Willows as the one kingdom that got a book. Or it ends up somewhere else, and... Nobody cares about David or Morwen or Fairleth. It's the local dukes and duchesses, and it's entirely local politics, which, again, there's a place for that. That's legitimate play for every line, but it shouldn't be the only legitimate play. And I've always kind of felt that that's because the core books just didn't introduce a conflict that mattered, even most of the extended books, the main enemy ends up being the Thelane or the Fomorians. You know, the, oh no, the Red King is going to come back. Ooh, yeah. I mean, that's there's a place for that, but that does not make the primary conflict for an entire game line. This right, book, and that's like just to bust in for a second. Like even like the plot in Denizens of the Dreaming, that's out in the Dreaming somewhere. That's really far away. It's like the antediluvians in Vampire. Like, yeah, that's something I'm worried about. It's sort of a oppressive thing that's just always there, but my games are, like, almost never about that. Yeah, and honestly, no game can start being about that. Like, there are people that want to eventually scale up to the cosmic. Cool. 
there should be enough content out there to do that, but like you can't do a zero experience game about that. This book introduces factions that a starting character could be a member of and could care about. And yeah, the plot is about the king's sister and the king's wife and Queen Mab. And no, you're, you really shouldn't be running into those people or even people who know those people as a starting character. But sort of in the same way, and uh, I apologize to everyone for invoking some real world politics for a moment, but take it as abstractly as you can. In the same way that we care what Biden or Trump or Barr or, you know, even Obama does when they go out and say something, we pay attention to it because it will ripple out and affect us. That's kind of how I see this story working. There are factions at the street level that you could be a member of. You have political opinions about whether Fairleth becomes queen or Lenore ascends to the throne or something totally different. And that's what drives you because we're tribal creatures and changelings even more so. And like these affiliations make sense. They aren't Seely Unseely, which could change, and they, they're constantly muting that as a primary player conflict thing throughout the line. It's not the nefarious shadow court. There's a sprinkling of that. There's not much. It's something you care about and is concrete and would really create allegiances, like the cam to the sabbat, like, you know, why won't your craft join the traditions and stand against the horrible technocracy we're like, no, the technocracy isn't about to come and restart the pogrom, but that's still the defining thing that is why I'm arguing with your character. This book introduces those motivations probably for the first time in Changeling, because the political impulses and the commoner mirrors of the political impulses were always really abstract. I've never seen anyone really care about them, and this book creates versions of them I care about because it takes them out of the, like, pseudo-mythological space that they never really worked in. To put some meat on those bones, we should probably talk a little bit about what sets those things up to be important in this book. This book is a direct sequel to Kingdom of Willows, and in Kingdom of Willows, the High King disappears, we are set up with a for some reason, a confusing line of succession. We can probably talk about whether or not it is actually confusing, but at least in the course of the narrative, people find it very confusing. Parliament is unable to determine what to do. No clear line of succession is followed. Parliament shuts down indefinitely. In that vacuum of power, you end up having several different factions potentially becoming players and interesting players at that. On the one hand, you have the High Queen, Feralith, who isn't too much of a character, to be honest, and presumably King Milgi behind her, pursuing the throne. You have the heir apparent, Princess Lenore, and presumably her patron, Queen Mab, behind her, pursuing the throne. And you have Queen Morwen, the High King's sister pursuing the throne because she's the regent. And the narrative treats all of these as co-equal claims for some reason. 
you also have the houses jockeying for position. You have the courts jockeying for position. And you have the commoners attempting to survive this, I think is probably the best way to put it. The conflict that they set up is a perfect example of the one thing I think this book does poorly. And that is, it does just a little bit too much of everything it tries to do. There are more than a few too many secret societies. There are a few too many claimants to the throne. There are just a little bit too much of everything. If they had stripped out about 20% of what is in this book and devoted that 20% to just fleshing out what was left and giving you the same size book just with less, a lower volume of things, I think it really would have improved the book overall. I like the complex multiple claimants, but I think... When they wrote the story, they somehow felt the need that they needed to make it confusing to, like, communicate the tension of, oh no, who has the claim. Whereas the line of succession could really be much simpler, and the complicated part could just be political. Because Lenore has a clear claim, as David said, you are my heir, and Fairleth has a clear claim because... David named her High Queen right when they got married, right before disappearing. But then there's Morwen. Why is Morwen regent? Mab is in charge of Lenore. Fairleth is High Queen, and no one has proven that David is dead. And then Morwen is just there. And I think the overall struggle would have been a lot more interesting if they had set up rules that said... You know, the way David declared Fairless is that she would rule with him while they were alive, and when he passed, it would go to Lenore, one way or the other, like, set that up as the rule, and then use the constructs of the world. I mean, Fairless is Islanded, and the Islanded are constantly conniving, and David and Fairless got married presumably a week two weeks maybe before David disappeared at most. It may have only been a few days. David disappeared on the first stop of their honeymoon see us tour. And if you want to know what that tour is all about, watch the first season of the crown because they show Elizabeth doing basically the real world equivalent of what they based this tour that Fairleth and David were doing on. You can see what the purpose is and it, reinforces why it mattered but i could totally see there being a big political fight about oh well she's island edge she must be behind it but they go out of their way to say oh no fairleth is an innocent at every turn and they don't even really ever have it be a situation where morwen comes in and says i'm going to side with lenore and i'm going to accuse fairleth of being island ed they even do this super weird thing where it's like oh no Morwen and David were lovers in Arcadia, and then of oh, the tragedy, they were incarnated into siblings, and now they can't because of the taboo. And they do that instead of actually, like, using any of the changeling social dynamics that were set up by the world, and it's probably, to me, the weakest thing. If they had just taken Morwen out of the claimant dynamic and made it about, did Island had set David up? which would invalidate Feralis' claim, is David dead, which would invalidate Feralis' claim, is Lenora a tool, 
does Lenore want to, like, stop being a tool? Is she a wild card? Like, that would have been interesting enough, and they just had to go that extra step and make it all about incest because edginess, I guess. I don't get why that's an issue for the Fae, because, like, this this all has shades of the Mists of Avalon, and the incest thing is a huge deal in Mists of Avalon because somebody happens to be Christian. In this, like, they never get into, like, what the morality of anything to do with your past lives is in Fae society, so... I mean, the incest taboo is a thing that's baked into humans, sure, but we're not talking about humans, not completely. So it's really, it just reads like a contrivance to make some sort of conflict, and it doesn't land. I think you brought this up when we were talking about this before, just taking Morwen out of the picture entirely, and then inserting the commoner cause there as the third force trying to do something with you know, the halls of power. Not only is that more interesting than this character who is at no point ever described in a way that's interesting being replaced with 50 opposing views all trying to work together. Like, that's way more interesting. The commoner cause has a presence in this book. This book does what Changeling always does, and radicalism equals evil. They go out of their way to set up the Urban Renewal League as boogeymen. In the write-ups about the secret societies, most of the secret societies get these big, meaty write-ups. They're like a whole column. There'll be three, four, even five paragraphs. The Urban Renewal League has like a quarter-column snippet. It's tiny. And basically it boils down to, wah-ha-ha-ha-ha, we're unseelie, yay anarchy, we're going to go out and kill the nicest she we can find, so you know that no, she is safe. And, okay, I mean, anyone who's a longtime listener knows that I am a fan of the idea of the Urban Renewal League. I like the idea of some really intense, revolutionary, commoner groups. The Urban Renewal League needs some nuance. I don't want to soften them, but I want there to be some conflict within them, or to have them a stronger conflict between the Urban Renewal League and more progressive voices. And there are a couple more progressive groups in here that could serve that purpose. They're in the Secret Society section, and they get written up. There's Emma's Little Helpers and the Children's Crusade. You've got... The Childing Underground Railroad, the Commoner Rights Society, the Commoner Liberation Organization, the Damned If You Do Fellowship, Emma's Little Helpers, the Urban Renewal League. The problem I had with a lot of these is they're all the goddamn same thing. Except some of them have a line at the end that says, but ooh, they're evil because they're attached to the Shadow Court, or ooh, they're evil because they're redcaps. Yeah. And that was kind of my problem as well. And when you're in other parts of the book and commoners are invoked, it's kind of boogeymen. It's Urban Renewal League. It's not these other more progressive forces or even these less violent radical forces, we'll call them. And it just felt too much like either this book was written by anti-revolutionary people, which... 
isn't shocking. I mean, let's be honest, most people are anti-revolutionary. Most people want their world to remain somewhat stable. Or this book was written by people who were very wrapped up in we have to keep the edge on this. Changeling has to have a place in the world of darkness, which I'm less angry about. I don't like that impulse, but I get where it comes from. It could be a combination of those things. Hard to say. Yeah, and to speak to like making a place for Changeling in the world of darkness because it's the world of stormy pinkness, like they didn't even need to do that, at least not in this section of the book. Because this book goes into atrocity after atrocity after atrocity. Like, this is the book that puts Dreaming in the world of darkness. Legitimately, there should be some commoner organizations that are awful. People are awful. <laughs> That's just a fact. But, like, so many of my notes on, on some of the, the secret societies is they're evil because reasons. And not like, oh, like, they want to do these three specific things, and they're willing to go to any lengths to do these things. No, it's just they're evil for the sake of having somebody be evil. It's one of the things I dislike about this book, is that it uses shorthand a lot. The intro story has... It's actually one of my favorite intro stories for Dreaming. But it has this terrible bit in it where they use... these. This is a shorthand for these people are evil. It's completely unnecessary. And they do it in the Secret Societies section. But the thing that makes it galling is they're actually really good in this book at giving you explicit, like, I am showing you how these people are awful things and not, you know, invoking a, a sadder sex slave child as a shorthand for their evil. This is what the power brokers are doing in order to maintain their grip on power, and you totally get why they're doing that and why it makes sense to them. It's still awful. <laughs> I will say I feel like this problem is relatively easy to fix. You know, we talk a lot about how several Changeling books sort of give you an outline for something, but really you have to do most of the lift. And here it's more copy editing. You just have to go in and strip out the 10% of this book that is needlessly edgy and throw it away and you're left with really a pretty good book. I like the fact that what it means to be an anti-monarchist is finally given enough dimension to be playable. There's a lot of stuff in this book that I wish had been in fool's luck. There's a lot of stuff in this book that if I think about what did the original plan for this story look like and when they did fool's luck, how did this stuff not end up in that outline? That's not a critique about this book. It, that content is good, by and large. It's just a a question I have about how those design sessions went. But there is a lot in here that's very usable, and there's a lot of potential conflict between you and other PC-style changelings that make sense. You know, the primary enemy is no longer the nefarious evil Ileal or Leonin that is beyond the pale of PC. It's no longer the nefarious Shadow Court. It's legitimate other changelings that you just disagree with and you will spill blood over. And that feels much more World of Darkness than most of Changeling usually ends yeah. up feeling. Yeah, some of the best writing in this book is talking about the nominal good guys. When Parliament shuts down for the last time, it's immediately after somebody from House Ilunid seizes the speakership. 
And they give a really good explanation for why they were motivated to do that and how they were outmaneuvered by the other houses into doing something stupid like that. In some of the, the kingdom updates, and you see what's going on in Queen Mab's domain, which is New York, basically, one of the people who is the patron of one of the candidates for the high queenship, and she's, you know, Seely, nominally one of the good guys. Like, you see the draconian measures that are coming down from on high from Queen Mab about how people will live in her realm, so she thinks she's one of the good guys. Here's the thing she's doing. Do you think she's one of the good guys? Why do you think that? As a direct, you know, foil for Mielgi in the Kingdom of Willows, there's this really interesting space created there where you have outright Seely tyranny on the one hand, and secret shadow court. You think it's actually a nice place to be, but it's not going on on the other hand. Both of those things are terrible, and they're both being put on by, you know, main players of the game. And you can totally see how they would affect your game. You can see, like, if you were in the Kingdom of Apples or the Kingdom of Willows, like, how you could use the slide into awfulness to set off different parts of your game. And I actually really enjoy the Disillusion of Parliament section of the book and, like, the Red Branch Knights ruining themselves and, like, all of the... You know, the center cannot hold things happening because suddenly everything about the setting is much more interesting. I definitely experienced that. The Red Branch Knight section is fantastic. The other thing I really like about this book is there will be random sections where they talk about an event like they're not Boston Tea Party, that's totally a Boston Tea Party, and they're the sorts of events that you could run if you wanted to. And no, there's not a whole campaign here, there's a couple paragraphs, but the hooks for, I could run this as a session, I could write this into a character background, I could have an NPC who came rushing from this event and has to have the PCs try to mitigate the horrible repercussions that are about to come down the pipe. The book is just filled with that stuff. In that respect, it's a much more practically usable changeling text than I'm used to seeing. I really liked that stuff. I got into the section about the not Boston Tea Party, and I was like, oh, this is going to be boring because it's going to be the Boston Tea Party straight up. It's not super highlighted, but... Like, when the commoners capture the dross reserves and they interrogate somebody, they find out that all of this was bound for the Kingdom of Willows. And it's just like, oh, well, that made it interesting. Like, why would they be doing that? Is there, like, this amazing cross-she conspiracy going on, or is this just Shadow Court stuff? I also really feel like this book is at its best when it doesn't answer those questions, which is a good segue into... The prophecy section. Simon read the prophecy section before I did, and he asked me about it, and I said, I'm jumping around, I'm trying to, like, read the character write-ups after I read the canon that relates to them, so I haven't quite, like, jumped back and forth to that section yet. And then I got to the prophecy section, and it's potentially kind of interesting, except they 
as with so many sections of this book, I think just went a little too far. And if there'd been a bit more restraint, maybe a little more editorial slicing, we would have actually gotten a better product. Simon, why don't you share with the listeners what the prophecy section does, what it talks about. So there's a series of prophecies, and they're done in the format of, here's the exact wording of the prophecy, which is always a mistake. And then there's Yordana, the seeress of winter's take on prophecy. And several of them are events that already happened, like King David ascending to power, and the Accordance War, the Shi coming back. And then several of them are things yet to come. The most important one being that there's going to be a new High King, and he's going to be the King of Winter. And also, there's somebody else who's sort of tangentially involved in that, who's a she, I guess. And it's very much setting up the intro chapter character, who is also a signature character later, Niall, to have a role in what happens to Concordia. And also, for a recently arrived Arcadian she from House Gideon, Sir Danon, or Danun, I'm not quite sure what the pronunciation is who is very clearly set up to be the next High King, for some reason. The thing I find most interesting about the prophecy section is that it reads like they shoved the entire rest of the metaplot in there because they knew they weren't getting another book. The problem is, it's a prophecy section, so it suffers all of the problems that prophecy always suffers in role-playing games, where either it's boring and I'll never use it, or it's extremely explicit and therefore boring, but leaves no room for you to come up with anything else. And it's kind of both, honestly, for me, because like, I don't find most of it interesting, and of the two characters who have a hand in fate coming up, Niall's the only one who got enough characterization to be interesting. Victor mentioned that Sir Danon may have been written before House Danon was part of the plan, because the name. Yeah, and I'm going to go ahead and just go back and put in some some things from interviews that I have heard to put this in context. So this was the last book in the original run of Changeling, and then it was cancelled. Like, even the art house thing fell apart. And the World of Darkness limped along for a while, and then the end times happened. I know from interviews that Matt McFarland basically came out and said, look, we should really do Changeling here. We should include this in the end times stuff. But the line had been dead for quite a while at that point. He had to push and fight, but he got those three scenarios that are in Time of Judgment, and he developed them. And that's where House Dannon was introduced. So I kind of know from interviews that this was done before House Dannon was in the cards. They were an end times concept that then got sort of repurposed and rebuilt in C20. And if you look at the prophecy about a Winter King and the fact that this Gwydion who shows up, again, another Gwydion, why we're framing Gwydion as the Winter King with the entire line precedent of the fight over the court's and the seasons, I mean, this is a place for Ileal to shine, but we're going to make him a Gwydion anyway. It's basically in the section right before the prophecy where it talks about him showing up. He has no personality. It's told through the perspective of another changeling who interacts with him. And then he goes in and makes his claim. 
and now there's a new claimant. But like he's never mentioned again in the book. It, he doesn't in any way disrupt the way the existing tension between the queens is framed. He's male, which would have immediately opened up the fact that we have this narrative all-female space, you know, around who replaces a high king, and then we're just going to disrupt that, but we're not going to deal with it. And it's clearly about this whole winter king prophecy. If you had just taken him out entirely and just left the prophecy, while I agree prophecy gets a little trite, you at least would have the space to build something and decide what, to, what does winter king mean to me? Do I want to invoke the unseely? You know, what do I want to do with that? And it would give some of the other houses a place to shine that they don't really have in this story. And then moving forward, if you wanted to graft this on to C20, there is an obvious place for House Dannon and House Dannon being nominally unseely. What role do they have? They are clearly a creature of prophecy, being the direct inheritors of the label of the Tuahadadanan. There's a lot of interesting stuff there that they just, like, don't leave room for. When I talked about, like, slicing off the 20% of this with copy editing, this is kind of the first thing on my cutting room floor, if I'm honest. So far, we've talked a lot about the plot as it relates to Concordia, and that's most of what this book is about. There are passing references to other places. They go into what's going on in Europe. It is fascinating to me that they did this, but they mostly wrote Europe from the perspective of how do they feel about what's going on in Concordia, which is typically the take they use for the Ghislaine for the, the non-white groups. I just thought that was interesting. There's also some discussion about what the Nunahi are up to. It's not very good. There's some discussion about what the Inanime are up to. It's not very good. I think this is the first canonical reference to Fae in Africa who aren't Ishu, because there's a couple of paragraphs dedicated to what's going on in Africa right now. They're not super inspiring, but I thought it was interesting that it was here, of all places. And I will say, I didn't devote a lot of word count to this, but the Galician Confederation write-up didn't so much talk about how they feel about Concordia, but talked about the fact that all of the tensions are overflowing, and now they are preparing for invasion. Because as there are these commoner uprisings elsewhere, the Shi are getting touchy about the idea of self-governing commoners generally. It's just a couple sentences. I mean, in a book full of thoughts that aren't given enough oxygen, this thought could be a whole book, so it clearly does not get enough oxygen. But it does hint at the possibility of an interesting alternate setting during this time that I think could be really engaging. It, it was really the only section I saw where anyone outside of Concordia was framed in something other than, well, how do I feel about Concordia? It just made me wish there was more in that area than there is. They also give us a couple of chapters on places and people of note. There are updates for what's going on in each of the constituent kingdoms within Concordia. I might be wrong, but those sections read a little bit like they were the abstracts for the kingdom books, and they just shoved them in there to like try to wrap things up real quick. They also 
go into important places to the Concordian government. Taranor is described. The Parliament of Dreams is described. Both of them are in New York. They're real places. And then they go into signature characters for this book. It's sort of the same way they did it in the Books of Houses, where there are people associated with movements and secret societies. Not all of them are compelling. I remember reading about the hero of Coldfort, and I retained none of it because she's a terrible person. And they write her up like she's a great war hero. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, okay, that's how we're doing this. There's also a couple of perspective characters from earlier chapters who are written out explicitly here. There's an Ileal who's described, and he has a relationship with a Slua. I don't know if it was not enough words or too many words, but they're on opposite sides of the conflict because the Ileal is very much about perpetuating the She's power, even if he would much prefer the Unseelie court be in power. And the Slua was written up as the commoner's spy in the Parliament of Dreams and Terranor. And at no point did they ever say, these two people are using each other. Like, it's completely written as straight romance. And I don't get how. I mean, uh, I get how. I'm not happy about it, but I get how. This is something I have seen across Changeling. For some reason, Changeling... Players, writers, some combination are just really tied to romance. Like, they want all these romantic interplays, and they're given precedence over actual plot. It's, like, I don't like it. I never use it in my games, ever. But I remember it being the thing that made me the most angry when I read the Shadow Court book, was the sheer number of words devoted to unseely romance like that's a thing i need game content on it's very changeling i kind of felt about the character write-ups i have mixed feelings about them on one hand they're longer than character write-ups that i've seen i think in any of the other changeling books they are more tied to the plot so they are more useful some of the characters have really nice plot seeds at the end some of them really don't. Morwen's plot seeds at the end are pointless. They do nothing. Lenore's are pretty awesome. I don't know. I like the devotion, but at the same time, I don't love the execution because yeah, of things like this. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. At the same time, I feel like this is the best execution of this sort of thing in Changeling up to this point because some of these characters, I have a blanket policy in my games when I'm storytelling not to use signature characters because it's the quickest way to completely erase, you know, player agency. But I wouldn't mind using some of them. And then some of them are complete putting face non-entities that I don't care about. I've used signature characters once or twice, but I always set the signature characters on a path tangential to the PCs. I never put them in opposition to the PCs because it destroys character agency. They're there to provide a bit of epic scope in 
window dressing and to be quest givers or maybe information brokers. And that's it. That's the only role I will give a signature character. I have very mixed experience with it. I have yet to get to play Changeling with Changeling fans. All of my Changeling players have been the sorts of people where I am introducing them to the game in the setting. So if I introduce a signature character, they have no idea that I didn't spend the last week writing them up. So there isn't a whole lot of payoff there. Whereas when I've done it in Mage and I've played with hardcore Mage fans, the twinkling in their geeky eyes is payoff enough. Thinking from the point of view of someone who is playing with a bunch of actual hardcore Changeling fans... I think this book does the best job of giving you a tool set of characters you could pick up. At the same time, the list is long, and there are so many signature characters in Changeling that it's really hard. Like, unless you drop Sir Donovan on someone, it's kind of hard for them to actually recognize anything. I mean, some of the characters I'm only just now reaching the point where they're like comfortably part of my psyche and how long have we been doing this podcast yeah this is one thing i think we disagree on for the most part but here i think we agree <laughs> um, i actually really enjoy the art in this book because it tends to line up with something that was written in the book pretty well in this section there's a character who is supposed to be the Ishu leader of the Peasants' Rebellion. The description of this character makes it pretty clear that he was born in America, he's always lived in America, he's an African-American, and the picture of him is... I'm not even comfortable saying that it's like representative of culture so much as it is generic African tribal look. There is no reason for him to look that way. He's an issue, which is, I guess, the ethnic kith at this point still. But everything about him says Black American, not, you know, recent arrival with the circus like they drew him. So this picture brought up something in my mind, and I don't know why I'd never thought of this previously. It made me realize that I looked at this picture and I immediately thought, oh God, why does he dress that way? you know, what is with this noble savage BS. And then my eyes glanced to the very next page where the art for Rowena the Just, leader of the Riders of the Midnight Trods, is there. And this is a she in full armor, full regalia. And it's not like anybody is going to be wearing any of that day to day. And the thing I realized when I looked at these two pictures next to each other and thought about my reaction to them is... In all the write-ups in Changeling, whenever you're reading about a European fae, all of their high traditional fantasy garb is described as voile. They get to have a voile. And then I thought back and I realized when I read about the Nunyahi, it's they dress in super traditional garb. It's never voile. It's never their femien. They're just described as straight up being that way. The issue are neither of those things. I mean, the issue are our core kith, so why would I jump to that conclusion that it's not his boil? And I realized it's just because of the way I'm used to non-European cultures being represented in Changeling, and it, it suddenly struck me that, like, why is that written that way? Why is 
that the division? Why aren't non-European kith given explicit voile descriptions and then explicit meat-seeming descriptions? That division, if it were consistent in the line, would solve not every problem. I don't want to pretend it's a cure-all, but it would solve a lot of the representation problems. Getting back to this particular picture, it is incredibly generic, and the person in the picture looks like an elf. Aside from the eyes, which very much have the black starry aspect to them, this does not look like an African-American person. This looks like a she that we have put in blackface. And I don't know why that choice was made, because it's a questionable choice. There's a lot about the dynamics of this character and the way he's represented that bother me distinctly, but also illuminated for me a lot of things that have bothered me in the whole line that I'd never really been able to put words to previously. And to expand a little bit on that, like, voile versus mundane appearance thing, in even some of the Books of Houses, she get modern voile. They get guns, they get computers, they get holographic assistants. Why would it be different for Anishu or Anunahi? Why are all the non-white changelings frozen in time 400 years ago? And none, well, I shouldn't say none, the white kiths all get the choice of what do I look like? It's very legitimate. It kind of goes back to some tension I experienced. The first thing I put out on the Storyteller's Vault included a Native American character, and I had that section, you know, read by some, some editors, some sensitivity readers, and it included the art. I wanted them to review the art. And I made certain that that character was dressed in high fashion from contemporary Native American fashion designers. I wanted to do that to both represent the culture authentically, but completely subvert this ridiculous trapped noble savage bullshit. I don't think I've ever seen an attempt at that in, to be honest, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen an attempt at that in any of the White Wolf books. But the Nunyahi especially are rife for that and here if you you know if we compare this picture to what was done say even in black panther where there was a lot of african fashion design that was brought to bear like there's such a rich place for that and i would have liked to have seen that here especially because this is a character that is now being framed in the context of a very here and now conflict happening in concordia in a book with a lot of other very contemporary framed art. It just, it stands out, unfortunately so. Moving on <laughs> from our complaints about artistic choices, the last chapter in this book is all about mass combat rules. And, like, it's nice that it's there, However, this book is 20 years old. There are better mass combat systems out there. And to be completely honest, it's changing the dreaming. Mass combat isn't super suited to the setting they made. What they really needed more than mass combat was faction jockeying, especially with the way they set this book up being 
narrative and political, what you're really looking for is a way to describe the Urban Renewal League has suffered a loss in standing among the people in the Kingdom of Apples, but at the same time, the Shadow Court is gaining sway in the Parliament of Dreams, and you know, just being able to model this kind of political jockeying would have been so much more useful, I think. This is a conflict taking place in modern America. It's 1999, it's the early 2000s, like, cell phones are and cell phone cameras aren't quite ubiquitous yet, but, you know, a bunch of fairies running the fuck all over Manhattan, heaving the earth, would be noticed. So I do feel like, to be fair, it's reasonable to take a step back and be aware of my own play bias. I've done mass combat a couple times, and I have absolutely zero interest in keeping track of the details of mass combat. I care about mass combat as a setting that will inform the decisions of my players. You're in the middle of this melee, you're winning, you're losing. What's the the flow of victory and how does that motivate you? I care about that. So I tend to say, put my characters in the setting of mass combat and I'll roll a die occasionally and let them know, all right, where's the momentum? Okay, now what are you going to do in response? My biggest problem with mass combat in Changeling is scene five exists. If you have reached the point in the game where your players have the kind of influence where they will get to make use of a system like this, you best believe some of them have enough scene to make these rules meaningless. Like Wayfair and scene exists. And the narrative write-ups of Changeling tend to ignore scene. Like, they just ignore the fact that Changelings are way more powerful in the system than how they're represented. But as soon as you put a system to it, you kind of can't ignore that. I mean, I perused through this and I tried to see, does this deal with glamour? Does this try to wrangle that problem into a shape that is manageable? I didn't see anything along those lines. This doesn't really deal with magic. It's true. Mass combat. There are more recent World of Darkness mass combat rules in the Vampire 20th Dark Ages Tome of Secrets. If you're really interested in running that, I know there are players that would dig this. And at the time that this was released, it was more manageable. Glamour was scarcer. Unleashing didn't exist. You were more impacted by banality than you are now in cantrips. So oh, I kind of get it, but especially if you want to try and pick this up and apply it to your C20 games, you're going to have to do some extra work to rein in the, well, I can be a god for exactly 60 seconds, so I guess this is the moment impulses of C20. Yeah. Yeah. And I've never had trouble pulling systems from other games, and I would really recommend doing that here, because... Looking at the even the mass combat rules as mass combat rules, there are lots of other games that do a better job of exactly this thing. At the very end of the book, once you get past mass combat, there is an appendix with the kind of crunch you'd expect. Merits, flaws, a little bit on arms, and they actually put some 
fighters and flying contraptions that you could use in that mass combat system if you really do like that idea. They do give you some some structure to use it. And overall, I would say this is all kind of nice. I like the crafts. I don't know that I would use the crafts with the mass combat system specifically, but I I like that they're there. They have stats. I feel like you could pick them up and use them very quickly. It's only a few pages. The merits and flaws are pretty good. They directly relate to the theme of the book, things like Oath Taken, which having an oath is nothing new, but being oath taken is a very specific social problem in this book that relates to something that she did at the beginning of this conflict, this new conflict, and I like that they systematize some of that. I wouldn't say there's anything groundbreaking, but it's all usable and approachable. So in that respect, I think it's well done. Yeah, I agree. All of this stuff is mediocre to good in the appendix. I was especially excited about the vehicle section, and my one big complaint about it is they don't have treasure ratings for them. Because that would have been the one thing to make them useful to anybody, not just people using the war system. It wouldn't be hard to reverse engineer one. It's just, it's it's pretty bad oversight. And it would have taken such little word count. I mean, a title and a number for each one. It probably would have added under 100 words to apply that to the whole section. That is a pretty unfortunate oversight that would have added a fair bit of utility. Just like this entire book in the C20 age, the points are made up and the score doesn't matter. What era of changeling development do you think this book fits into, Victor? I would say this falls into the Denizens era. It makes some references to the Fomorians. They're cursory. They're, do you want to fold the Fomorians into this? And they are mentioned in the context of, are they rising again? I'd put it soundly in that era, too. It's not quite the C20 truly fundamental nightmare fae beyond space and time, but yeah, it's pretty solid Denizens era. Yeah, this one's interesting for me because it is very clearly Denizens era, but it also doesn't give two shits about the Denizens. <laughs> so it's another place where our era system kind of breaks down, I think. Yeah, I would agree. I think there's one heading, three paragraphs, that's basically like, the Denizens, are they important? Who will get to them first? Like, someone knew Denizens existed and thought, okay, I've been assigned this word count, but didn't bother looking up and seeing that they are already aligned with the Fomorians and the Thelang. Shrug. <laughs> okay, so is the system in this book functional? Yes, mostly. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the battle system they came up with, which we just talked about kind of at length. But, I mean, other than that, it's a really narrative-heavy book with not a whole lot of system. Yeah, I agree. The merits and flaws work. The battle system is about as functional as any other truly crunchy system from this era, which is to say squint at it and do a couple rights for good luck and hold your breath and maybe. That was kind of World of Darkness during this era. Things have improved marginally since then, but it works as well as can be expected. Okay. Is this cohesive with other Dreaming products? 
I really think it is. It's not cohesive with C20, but that is not its fault. C20 basically cut off Fool's Luck and Warren Concordia and went, nope, we're picking up right after Kingdom of Willows, forget all of that. And that was a choice that was made later. So it's not cohesive with C20, but it's very cohesive with everything that came before it. It is clearly researched, similar to how Fool's Luck was clearly researched. But the primary complaint I had about Fool's Luck, where there'd be a very generic write-up, and then they'd say, go read the larger generic write-up by getting this book, and it just felt like wasted word count. Where they do that here, it's, here is new content talking about what has happened in the last you know year, and how this group fits into this story we're telling. If you want the generic write-up, it's over here, which feels useful. It feels like a value add. I think it's well-researched. It's coherent in a way that I'm not used to. And it does that coherence better than the one other book we found that shares that particular merit. So all in all, I think that's a win. Yeah, I'd say this is pretty cohesive with other gaming products. Even in the C20 age, there are big chunks of this book you can pick out and transplant basically unchanged into C20. A lot of the little like episodes where this thing happened here... I don't think you'd have to change much at all to just transplant them. The biggest thing that doesn't fit is the three queens tension is just gone. David walks into the court, Fairleth, oh, fawns and throws herself at him. And, oh, well, that conflict's over with. And now, uh, Thelang, I guess. I mean, that's C20's setting. And so the primary conundrum that this book spends its time exploring is kind of thrown out the window. That said, especially the groups that were fighting for commoners, violently or progressively, you know, either way, I think all of those groups would have an opinion about hollow-eyed David returning, and does that mean anything, and are we still in the fight? Has the wind been taken out of our sails? So that part I think you could pick up and use. There's nothing that just goes over on its own, though. Like, you have to work to make all that stuff fit you need to update it was this enjoyable rating on this i'd give it a four i'd give the book a solid four you know there were obviously a few things that were frustrating most of what i found frustrating though wasn't poorly written it just needed some more editorial oversight like i said they needed to do less or try to do less and then do more with what they actually did work with and i think the book could have been tightened up but that said i still really enjoyed it i like having actual commoner factions i care about i even care about most of the she conflict in this again if you throw more went out that increases dramatically but there's still a lot there to work with yeah i'd, I'd give it a four this is this is a four for me like there are a lot of little quibbles around the edges, and then a couple of bigger things. But as far as dreaming books go, this is pretty close to perfect. The plot in this book is where the plot should begin in the core book. We're at a place, finally, in the dreaming plot where things are as interesting as Vampire is in the core book. Things are as interesting as Werewolf is in the core book. Things are as interesting as Mage is in the core book. We have conflict. Not everything is, like, super awesome because there's 
a king who's apparently really nice, but still can't see his way towards, you know, egalitarianism or a truly representative democracy. But, you know, who cares about that? This book is, with its little pimples, where second edition dreaming really should have been. (laughs) Yeah, so that then gets us into aesthetic value, which I think Simon and I are probably on slightly different pages on. Simon, where would you put this book on aesthetic value? This is a mix for me, because for the most part, I liked the art. There are bits where it's frustrating, and there are bits where it's really good, like the cover's amazing. But this book also has some layout problems. There are lots of pages that just end in white space, for no appreciable reason. Like, the text begins at the top of the next page. It's not a chapter break. It's just somebody didn't do layout very well. And it's not, like, brutal. It's not like words bleed off the end of the page. It's just mistakes. Like, if you take the layout out of it, this book is probably, like, a a high three. But if you put the layout back in, it's high two maybe three it's complicated (laughs) what did you think so this is where my history as an art major and my incredibly picky nature is going to come in because looking at our scale and just so everyone knows we have descriptions for these numbers for ourselves and i'm going to go ahead and read the aesthetic value scale for you one it's all that horrible anime line art you know the layout is incompetent this book is not that it's not a one Two, it's decent, but I don't think it really captures the dreaming aesthetic. I don't think this book is that. It it does a pretty decent job of capturing the dreaming aesthetic. Three, more good art than bad art. I I can't I can't make that leap. I cannot. Um, there is good art in here. There is some art in this book that I like. I do really like the cover. I think it's telling that the cover is graphic and not illustrative. There are a few pieces in here that are clearly stretched. They are not at their original pixel ratio. This is just the guy who took college-level studio art, digital art classes. That is unforgivable. Unforgivable for me. Like, you you keep your pixel ratio, and you crop, and you deal with it. And it just drives me nuts. There's one or two page layouts where, like, the background texture is allowed to go over the border. Normally, when they have some other background texture, like parchment or paper, they don't put the border on it. It looks bad. And then in the character art section, especially some of the later art, is just that really, like, bad paint shop pro... I'm decent at drawing, but I don't know digital art yet, and I'm going to try to draw with the airbrush tool, and I'm sure it'll be fine. There's a there's an unacceptable amount of art in this book that fits that description, and some of that art was then stretched to preserve... Like, there's nothing here worth preserving. I don't know why it was stretched. The art that's good is good, but the art that's bad is unforgivably bad. So I am lost in a limbo between two and three, and I don't know that I can pick a number in there. Okay. If you had to do a one-sentence review of this book, what would it be? 
My one sentence review of this book is if you always really wanted a solid changeling meta plot and you like a good political narrative, buy this book. My one sentence review of this book is if you own one dreaming book besides the core book, it's this one. With a caveat, if you own two, get Kingdom of Willows second. Yes. Yes. I I think that's solid advice. The core book, Kingdom of Willows and War in Concordia, is a very usable set of Changeling books. Okay. Well, that was our review of War in Concordia. Hopefully, now that we've done a, a review of a book we actually liked, we'll be able to continue on forever. Oh, yeah.